Hey, Steven. Hey, good to see you. Yeah, you too, man. So here we are, I guess, at the end of the uh, Genesis sermon series. And I feel like normally right about now, uh, we'd banter back and forth a bit. But as it stands, I feel like the dense nature of Genesis just isn't really going to let us do that today. <laughs> yeah, all, the, all those uh, symbolic meanings and ancient cultural references and theological polemic, uh, no time for banter. Get, get on with it. <laughs> That's right. That's right. But to be honest, Genesis does present uh, a bit of an obstacle. I mean, how could it not? Here we have a book, or at least in the case of the sermon series, the first 11 chapters of a book that uh, don't really let up. Uh, I mean, they just kind of relentlessly throw out all sorts of things that uh, really make Genesis come off, for lack of a better term, as a literary beast. (laughs) Right. Uh, I mentioned at the beginning of this series that really the first 11 chapters alone, you you have this string of strange events populated by a host of very wild characters. You've You've got creation in seven days. You've got uh, paradise, forbidden fruit, talking snakes, mm-hmm. angelic beings sleeping with women, Noah's Ark, a flood. Uh, after the flood, Noah gets naked. Uh, the Tower of Babel, confusion of the world's languages. I mean, this is all very strange indeed. Yeah, no, it really is. And I remember you mentioning that the wild nature of Genesis uh, itself tends to freak a lot of people out, or, or at least they say initially, you know, this is just nuts. And then their coping mechanisms kick into high gear, and then they end up writing the whole thing off. I know in the case of Richard Dawkins, who you mentioned, um, he basically poo-poos Genesis as being a collection of kitsch fairy tales. That's right. Yeah, he, he makes the claim that Genesis is kind of a made-up alternative to the theory of natural selection. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he uses this argument, of course, to basically say that the Bible is just utter nonsense. But it, it, it's interesting because... Dawkins' claim actually echoes the claim of fundamentalist Christians, and that they're both saying that, that Genesis is a rival account to the theory of evolution, because, because mm-hmm. Dawkins and, and certain Christians have this tendency to take the, very, the first 11 chapters of the Bible completely uh, literally. And mm-hmm. uh, of course, many Christians do this because they feel that's what it means to make a good faith effort, a good faith attempt to get at the meaning of these passages. Um, right. But actually, by, by reading this literally, uh, mm-hmm. we're, we're going to end up missing the full range of meaning uh, because, because this is not straight prose. It, it's meant to be read as high prose. It's, this is literature. Mm-hmm. It's art. It's poetry. And, and if we don't recognize that, then these chapters will tend to be dismissed as, as primitive superstition. Yeah, so I'm immediately reminded of Moby Dick uh, by Herman Melville. Mm-hmm. My friend is reading it right now, actually. And the other day he mentioned offhand how he's never read a, a more difficult book. Hmm. Nothing makes any sense. Uh, the, the whole thing is just unreadable. Uh, the funny thing is, is that Herman Melville, just after finishing the novel, wrote uh, in a letter to his friend, Nathaniel Hawthorne, um, he said, I have written a wicked book and feel spotless <laughs> as the lamb. That's interesting. Uh, and I, yeah, and I've always thought that, well, maybe this claim has two meanings. One, that Melville was admitting uh, to the fact that the book was full of actual wicked things uh, in order to protest against the rampant hypocrisy that he saw in the church. But I also think he meant that as a work of art, that this thing that he had created was going to give people a lot of problems. A- and it has, uh, and it still does. Hmm. But we don't write off Moby Dick. We don't see it as being right. stupid or, or dumb or not worth reading. 
we see it as a beast of, of literature that presents challenges to those who choose to face it because it essentially refuses to be solved or resolved. Uh, we're meant to experience it. Hmm. And then the experience itself changes and shapes who we are. And right, and, and you, you know, Melville himself experienced the art in scripture and was challenged mm -hmm. by that experience. So this is, this is why there's so many scriptural elements in his work. Uh, I think there's mm -hmm. something like 650 references to uh, biblical characters, places, right. events, biblical books scattered throughout his works in, in which he, he's wrestling uh, continuously with his own issues of faith and doubt. That's something mm -hmm. he wrestled with his whole life. So, so Melville recognized the art and poetry of scripture and then used that, turned around and used it to, to create some of his, his own very difficult prose. So if, if we find modern literature like Moby Dick difficult, there, there's no doubt that we'll find this ancient prehistory uh, that, that, you know, that we have in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Obviously, we're going to find that difficult as well and confusing right. at first. And, and so, so we have to work at it. Right. And so then I guess what's the best way to read Genesis, considering that it is difficult and, and today uh, we are choosing to contend with it as high art? Well, I think I think the best way is to read it in community. It's one mm -hmm. thing to read it in the privacy of your own home and have your own ideas about it. But as, as Ron Williams says, uh, historically, the Bible was meant to be read collectively. Uh, and that means we, we read these chapters and we talk about them together. Um, you yeah. know, these may be difficult stories with multiple layers of meaning, but we, we sort through them together. We, we consult with each other. Uh, and, you know, we have in the church, theologians, philosophers, Hebrew scholars, historians, who, who all of them can help us uh, read better. And I guess by doing that, not only do we establish and solidify our communities, but we also avoid stagnation. So, you know, these stories have been for, around for a very long time. And anything that's been told over and over again or, or repeated too many times can easily lose its potency. So by reading collectively and discussing openly, we refresh these stories and then in turn, these stories refresh us. Yeah, actually, that's, that reminds me of something that C.S. Lewis said. Um, he, he says that we, we read ancient books, these difficult mm. books, these very hard books, because when, when we become familiar with lit the literature of the past, uh, we're given a standpoint that puts a sort of critical distance between us and our own particular era. And, mm -hmm. and, and we get to see the controversies of the moment uh, in, in their sort of a different perspective, in their proper perspective. Uh, sure. and, and so he says it helps us avoid becoming these sort of passive uh, captives of, of the spirit of, of our own age. But mm -hmm. he says, by keeping the clean sea breeze of centuries blowing through our minds. Hmm. So I'm immediately reminded of a, a story from art history. So there's an interesting fact about the great portrait painter, John Singer Sargent. Oh, yeah whose famous um, portrait, Madame X, hangs in, in the Met. But uh, in, in his studio, uh, when he was painting, he would put down a few brush strokes and then walk all the way across the room to see how things looked from a distance. And then he'd assess the situation and then walk back up to the canvas and put down a few more brush strokes and then repeat the process over and over again uh, until the painting was finished. Uh, so Sargent was obsessed with this idea of critical distance to the point where walking back and forth between one end of the room and the canvas that he was working on actually wore down a clearly visible path in the wood floor of his studio. Amazing. Um, yeah, when, and uh, you know, at, at the Met, I've looked at his work up close and, and they, mm -hmm. they do appear to be completely abstract, but, but everything sort of solidifies when you step back. 
Mm -hmm. And, you, you know, I think when, when we live life on, on a steady diet of news media, social media, Netflix, and exclusively contemporary literature, we're, we're sort of, it's like we're too close to the canvas and, and we, we need sure. the ancient literature to walk us back from the canvas. Otherwise, we fall into what Lewis calls a sort of chronological snobbery or what I, I call a sort of chronological uh, imperialism, which basically views our own very small sliver of time as somehow being the most enlightened, the most sophisticated, the most intelligent time period that, that, that has ever existed in the history of the world, which is uh, completely, <laughs> completely delusional. Yeah. Um, so, so to go back to your original question, mm -hmm. how do we read this difficult book? Well, I think we read this book together and mm -hmm. we let these ancient and wild stories provide us as a community with that critical distance we need from our own age. And... And because we recognize that this section of scripture is an amazing artistic endeavor, then we know that it's, it's not meant to be solved or resolved as such, but encountered. And mm -hmm. through that encounter, we're, we're shaped and, and we're changed. And I guess a good place to start then would be with the creation story. So in Genesis, you have this epic tale of an uh, eternally existent God who creates the entire universe in a matter of seven days. And, you, you know, there's the, the literal approach uh, to this that says, well, to heck with science. Uh, the world is only 10,000 years old. Uh, and then on the other side, there's the concordist approach, which attempts to make the story align with science. Uh, and then you start equating the seven days with seven different ages or eras, uh, that sort of thing. Right. But I'm not sure that either approach, the literal or the concordist, are particularly helpful. Right, because the author of Genesis wasn't asking scientific questions. Yeah, because modern science didn't exist when Genesis w was written. Exactly. And, and so it's not to say uh, we dismiss science. We're, we're just saying that's not what this is about. So we've been taking a different approach in this series, and maybe you could just just speak directly yeah, to that. Yeah, sure. So, so we, we've not been taking, as you say, the literal approach or the concordance approach. For the most mm -hmm. part, what we've been trying to do is to take what's known as the literary cultural approach, which, which first mm -hmm. asks, what kind of literature is this? And then what is the cultural context in which this literature was written? Okay, great. So literary, cultural. Right, Got literary, it. cultural, right. Mm -hmm. So when, when we do that, one of the things we discover is that the Genesis creation story grows out of the cultural context and the tradition mm -hmm. of the uh, temple inauguration. Yeah, and this is fascinating, actually, because uh, you mentioned this in the sermon series, that a temple inauguration typically took place over the course of seven days right. in, in which the building was um, sanctified, filled with objects of worship. And then on the seventh day, uh, once the temple was completely furnished and finished, the presence of God would rest upon the building and, and inhabit the holy space. That's right. So, so when it says that God rested, on the seventh day God rested, it, it's not that he takes a nap, but rather that he, he makes himself present in his, his holy and, and perfect world. And, and this, this was an aha moment for me because mm. that's a vastly different yeah, well, It was for me reading. too. <laughs> yeah. It's a vastly different way of, of reading the creation story. Uh, one that brings new meaning uh, to God's words when he calls his creation good. Uh, so there's a Madeline Le Engel quote where she talks about holiness uh, rather than being associated with unattainable perfection, uh, that it's actually the combination of the ideas of whole 
healthy and hearty. And, and I think this applies perfectly to God resting in his creation, uh, with his creation. Essentially, if we as humans are inhabiting God's holy temple and he is present in that temple, then this is the epitome of, of health and wholeness. So it's amazing to see what happens when you read this in, in, in that cultural context. Mm. Um, you know, and then because on top of the idea of the, of the inauguration of, of a holy temple, we also have the context of the surrounding religions uh, back when Genesis was, was written. And, and we discovered that the writer of Genesis was actually pushing back against the prevailing theological claims of the right. day. Right. Yeah. That, that then the, the, the writer of Genesis is actively challenging the, the sort of the existing polytheism and the religion of the day. Uh, mm. That they were, they were subverting the story that said, look, there are many gods who are in competition with each other who, you know, although powerful, they still had to answer to the forces of this world. And they rely on the deeds of men to meet their needs. And mm. so ancient Mesopotamian polytheism is, is a sort of, it's been called a, a referred to as a religion of anxiety. Because what if we fail the gods and they can't perform their task of fighting back the forces of chaos and evil symbolized by the sea and the great sea monsters? Mm -hmm. uh, we might fail them, they might fail us, uh, and we'll all be swept away. And so the authors of Genesis were telling their story against the story that, that said uh, the gods only grant their, their image to the kings and the emperors and the princes so that the, mm -hmm. the image-bearing elite can now use the rest of humanity as tools for their own ends. And so they're, they're telling this story against all of these, uh, these ideas. Right. And so the monotheism of Genesis is something entirely different. By contrast, uh, in the creation story, we have one God uh, who is not in competition with a pantheon of gods, right. uh, who, who cares for our needs. Uh, we don't meet his needs he actually meets ours and then who views uh the chaos and evil um not as, as great sea monsters uh which he has to fight but as essentially rubber ducks in his bathtub <laughs> and 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 it's this god whose image is is also uh firmly imprinted on each and every one of us so all humans regardless of position or power are made in the image of, of the creator and you know another right, so thing. It's, so uh, it's a total reversal, and it, it is, as you say, this pushback yeah. against, against all of that. Yeah. Yeah, and and it's fascinating. Because, and and another thing, uh, when you describe the the ancient Near Eastern uh, polytheism that that was existing back in the in the, the days of Genesis as a religion of anxiety, mm. that really hit me. I, I started to think about uh, my own anxiety uh, today, <laughs> or on a, on a daily basis, or however it plays out. And then also just the world around me uh, and the people that I know who are also dealing and struggling with anxiety. And I started to think that this is actually a very present and contemporary issue. It really is. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so so we, we don't have these gods as such, but you know, we, we have ideas which we then imbue with the powers of the gods. Mm. And you know, we all have ideas that we hold very near and dear, uh, whether these are political opinions, uh, ideologies, uh, or perhaps just ideas about what success looks like, or even ideas about ourselves, how intelligent or sophisticated we are or not, as we may feel. And I, I think contemporary polytheism is when these ideas are allowed to grow to, to these sort of godlike proportions to the point that mm -hmm. they begin to separate us from other people. So mm -hmm. I, I think it's really important for everyone to sort of pinpoint 
you know, what ideas have I allowed to grow to such monstrous proportions that they have actually become the dividing line um, between me and you, between us and our neighbors? Yeah, and I think that this idea uh, of ideas growing to godlike proportions uh, mm -hmm. and driving us apart actually unlocks meaning in the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. Uh, there are a few key things that that stand out, namely um, the the three ideas that you brought up, uh, voc the ideas of vocation, permission, and prohibition. Ah, you were listening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and by the way, I stole those ideas from uh, Walter Brueggemann, but yeah. <laughs> okay, good to know. Uh, so you have Adam and Eve's vocation. They're invited to tend the garden and join with God in the creative act of caring for his creation. Uh, then you have their permission so that they can eat from any uh, of the trees in the garden. And then finally, there's that one prohibition. They're not allowed to eat from the tree of knowledge. And, and what's interesting is we tend to get really fixated. Uh, this is one of the points I tried to make. We, tried, we get really mm -hmm. fixated on that one prohibition. Don't eat from the tree of knowledge. But when we focus on that, we're, we're overlooking the immense gifts that God bestowed upon Adam and Eve, the gift of abundant permission. Uh, you can eat from any of the trees in the garden. And then the gift of vocation. Come, come and join me in caring for my creation. So then I think it's really important that we discuss why the one prohibition was placed in the garden in, in the first place. Because uh, I think it's interesting how this idea of that prohibition actually brings up this concept of limits. Mm. And, and I know I've been on, on a Wendell Berry kick lately, and I do apologize for overquoting him. But no, go there's, ahead. <laughs> He's been helpful uh, so far. Okay, good. Um, there, but there's one Wendell Berry quote that I think is just too perfect to pass up in this case. And he says, our human and earthly limits properly understood are not confinements, but rather inducements to fullness of relationship and meaning. And I, I know in our last discussion, we talked about what happens when we conceive of ourselves beyond the limits of, of our humanity. So we conceive of ourselves as titans or as gods. Uh, and then we, we said that we become lost in magnitude if we do that. And then we cannot control or limit what we do. And, and so I realized that when we talk about the prohibition in the garden, what we're actually talking about are the boundaries and limits of human life. Right, because when we, when we try to live beyond the limits and boundaries, uh, our, our ideas are, are granted seemingly limitless power and mm -hmm. the status of the gods. And when our ideas reach those sort of monstrous proportions, no one's safe, right? Pe people mm -hmm. who, who uh, don't fall in line with my ideas are viewed with suspicion and perceived as a threat. And mm -hmm. these ideas, as we were saying, become the dividing line uh, between us and endowing some people with humanity, uh, dehumanizing other people. Like only, only a God can do that, but, but our ideas start to take on that sort of power. And uh, mm -hmm. someone whose ideas have this kind of status is, is not to be trusted. I mean, you, you literally, you just don't know when it will be turned on you. Right. And this isn't just isolated in Genesis. This comes all the way through time and plays out uh, on a daily basis here in, in 2020. It's impossible to love someone if we've allowed our political ideas to demonize them, even right. before kind of, of relationship can start. So when we begin to understand that the limits on our lives 
are the very things that actually allow us to access fullness of relationship and meaning. And mm -hmm. then on the flip side, limitlessness or being lost in magnitude is actually to be lost within the anxiety ridden world of ideas that actually causes us to drive countless wedges between us and others. Mm -hmm. uh, and in a way, I guess that brings us to the story of Cain and Abel, because right. here we see Cain becoming lost as he pushes against the limits of his own reality. Uh, in the sermon, you, you mentioned that God favored Abel's sacrifice over Cain's, and we're not told why, uh, but it's this idea that this simply was the reality that existed. Yeah, I mean, so different people have tried to explain why and come up with different reasons, but whenever they do that, we're sort of going well beyond what the text actually says. Mm -hmm. Like you say, we're not told why, it's simply the reality that existed. And uh, right, and, and th that reality presented Cain with a choice: either accept God's favor towards Abel and, and love his brother because the relationship and brotherly bond was something to be cherished, or, as the story goes, choose to harbor deep, festering resentment and allow it to grow into what Nietzsche calls uh, resentment. He uses the the French word uh, not because he was trying to be pretentious, as I said, but because it, it has this fuller meaning of a, a kind of neurosis. Uh, so, soon you'll you not only desire the destruction of the other, but, but also the destruction of yourself. So, so essentially this very deep jealousy wrapped up with deep self-hatred. Uh, and basically a worst case scenario. And I find it interesting because as we've been going through Genesis, I, I, I've started to realize that the whole book is just filled with worst case scenarios. So, uh, but what the, the weird thing is, is that we've reduced them to children's stories or, or uh, you know, and, and kind of cause them to become kitsch or lose their power. Uh, and that reminds me of the story of the flood, because one way to look at it is through the lens of cute animals on a boat. And then the other way to look at it is to see it as a mass genocide inflicted on all of humanity by an angry God. Right. And what, what, uh, what we try to suggest in this series is that the flood is really the backdrop which is being used to draw us into a deeper crisis in the heart of God himself. Um, one fact that we tend to overlook is that God felt deep grief. That's what it says. His creation had moved away from its, its original purpose. Right. So if the original plan was for Adam and Eve to tend the garden and eat from the trees, essentially work in collaboration with nature and reap the benefits of their labor, then this is very clearly the good life. Uh, and so on the right. flip side, when in the story of Noah, it speaks of humanity thinking of evil all the time, then you start to realize that the evil that it's talking about is a kind of holistic evil or evil as a way of life. It's not that people were actively plotting and planning each and every evil step, but it's right. more that humanity, uh, humanity as a whole had become swept up in, in an evil way of life and we actually know what that looks like, because uh, today we, we might equate uh, ideas of holistic evil with the dehumanizing mechanisms of war or, or fracking or sweatshops mm. or pornography or any industry that knowingly embraces practices that poison human culture and uh, creation. Right. That, that, that's a great example. And actually through, through that, that lens, it, it's not hard to see why a god who, who's... Um, right in the beginning rested within the temple of his holy healthy mm -hmm. creation would feel very deep grief over man's calculated efforts to seek their own 
rise to sort of godlike status at any cost. Um, as, and as we said, the, the, the word for grief or pain, when it says that God was grieved, uh, is actually the same word that was used uh, back in chapter three to describe the pain a woman will feel in childbirth with, with all the sense of blood and tears and, and risk and hope involved with that. Will, will mother and child survive? Yeah, and what future does humanity have if they keep trying to push beyond the limits uh, of human life? Because there are consequences for certain actions built into reality. Right. Uh, there's a deep logic uh, set in place from the beginning of time. Uh, in this reality that we all find ourselves, there is enough room for all people content to live as humans, but there's only room for uh, a, a few uh, intent on living as gods. That's, that's really well put. That's very helpful. Um, and, you know, in, in, in the story of the Tower of Babel, right, which is where the, the, this series ends and, and this passage mm -hmm. of scripture ends, we, we, see, we see human beings attempting to build a sort of a monument to their own godlike status, uh, their, mm -hmm. their desire to live once more sort of beyond the, the bounds of, of human life. And in the story of the Tower of Babel, I've always wondered uh, what was God concerned about? If humanity kept speaking one language, then there would be no limit to what they could do. So is this right, a story? Exactly. Yeah, is this a story of of an insecure deity who wants to keep us down, or or is this something else? <laughs> Good question. Um, so, you know, Genesis uh, one to eleven, this this section uh, starts with creation and it, it frames it as uh, sort of the building of a temple the creation is god's temple as we've been saying mm -hmm. and, and so perhaps the concern is that humanity stepping beyond the limits of human life reaching as we do for godlike status we could get to the point where we might be able to do the unthinkable or something truly catastrophic what, what if we could destroy the temple god built and then ourselves along with it mm. uh, of course for millennia that would have seemed you know, ridiculous notion uh, but for the community shaped by this book we've always known that was a, a very real possibility because as i mentioned offhand there are very real consequences for our collective culture of destruction right i, I feel like genesis is actually a book written for us today because we are a mm. humanity that faces the same brand of existential crisis and the same kind of global crisis. Uh, and on top of that, we're a people lost in a religion of anxiety. Sure, I mean, Genesis 1 to 11 ends with this crisis and question mark over humanity's future. You've had sort of the fall, the flood, the Tower of Babel. And these, these passages call us to recognize our predicament and reclaim the understanding that, that human, or here are these human and earthly limits and, and they're not confinements, but rather inducements to fullness of relationship and fullness of meaning. Mm -hmm. um, but, but thankfully, you know, Genesis doesn't end there. And just over the page, we have Genesis chapter 12. And there we read about a God who binds himself to humanity. And the story of humanity opens up again as God forges a new way ahead.